The state's government watchdog, the Commission on Ethics and Lobbying in Government, kicked off November with a roundtable discussion where they solicited input from good government groups on their 2024 legislative agenda. To discuss the agenda, as well as additional items that should be up for discussion next year in Albany, we're joined by Rachel Foss, Senior Policy Advisor for reInvent Albany, who spoke at the roundtable and also testified before the commission earlier this year. Welcome back to the show, Rachel. Pleasure to be here. So is there anything in the commission's legislative agenda for next year that you're supportive of and think would have a meaningful impact on the status quo in Albany? There's nothing, you know, we think is a problem in it. But I think the things I would highlight are a proposal to put the financial disclosure forms on the commission's website for all candidates who are running for the general election. That's not something they do now. So that would be a a brand new easier way to get the information. Right now you have to basically request disclosure statements in order to see them. And that's really to see what potential conflicts of interest do these candidates running for office have. The second thing I think that is a bit higher profile is the commission would like to add to the state's code of ethics an explicit mention that sexual harassment is a violation of the code of ethics. This is something that in practice the commission has established. And actually even the prior commission, Jacob, with you know the case against Vito Lopez, the former assembly member, for example. But this would just add some specificity and make it very clear that it's not just a violation of other rights to be harassed, but it's also a violation of the ethics code. And I think those are probably the most significant pieces from my perspective that they've proposed. Well, let's talk about the financial disclosures, which you mentioned would apply to candidates running for uh, the general elections in November. In very partisan districts, though, where they're particularly red or particularly blue, the outcome of who might represent an area is really decided in a primary. So why not uh, apply the disclosure to the primary candidates? This is something we pushed on at the roundtable, as well as the other groups who were present. The reason for only starting with the general election candidates was more an administrative issue in terms of, you know, there's there's dozens of these forms. So the commission didn't want to maybe bite off more than it could chew. But we, we really tried to push them on that. I also know that there's already a bill to require that that Assemblymember McDonald and Senator Breslin have. So it makes sense to support the legislation that's already in place that would apply to all candidates for state legislature and for statewide office. So we hope they amend that recommendation to make it a bit broader when it's finalized. You mentioned being generally supportive of the agenda that was advanced by the Commission on Ethics and Lobbying and Government, but were there any items that you would encourage them to drop before they begin, I guess, lobbying, for lack of a better word, Albany? I I don't think I'd take anything off the list. The issue more for me is that it was a little bit heavy on the side, at least on the lobbying front in particular. It was very heavy on the side about compliance and enforcement, but it didn't really speak to the quality of the filings that we get that the public can look at and what additional information should be disclosed by lobbyists. So I think Overall, the recommendations will help them enforce the law better and will give them some more tools. But it's it's more a matter of what's missing on the list. Well, on the lobbying side, then, what is missing from the package? When you look at the lobbying filings, which, mind you, now are in the open data portal, that's something that the commission did administratively, which they mentioned at the roundtable. That's actually a really positive step forward. 
But when you look at the lobby filings, you can't actually tell if lobbyists are working to support a bill or to oppose a bill. All you know is just that they lobbied on it. So it's a pretty simple fix that would have big implications for understanding who's trying to influence state government and exactly how they're trying to influence state government. Because it's there's a big difference between just, you know, here's 12 groups that lobbied on a bill versus seeing that, you know, there's nine groups that support a bill and one that opposes it. It gives the public so much more information if they actually know what outcome are these lobbyists trying to achieve. Could that be a murky area, though? Because I think of situations where a group might clearly have a vested interest in opposing a bill, and it's obvious that they are opposed to it, so there's no problem there. But there are some situations, I often think of maybe liberal groups who are opposed to what they might consider as half measures when it comes to areas that they want to see advanced. And so they are technically opposed to, say, that version of a bill. So how would they register on a bill in that case, even if they want to see something advanced in that sort of same sentiment? Fortunately, this is something that other jurisdictions have tackled. Um, I can't speak from personal experience, but, um, you know, working in other states, but looking at the some of the laws around other states, you know, the state of Montana and Idaho, for example, they do filings in this area that show support, oppose. Basically, a middle ground, I think, is an option. And, and we encourage the commission to look at what other uh, jurisdictions have done in this area. But I'd rather hash out the details of exactly how to draw those lines between support, oppose, and sort of that middle than have absolutely no information. So I think Honestly, it would be a good problem to solve is exactly how to parse those um, positions that groups may take. Anything else on the lobbying side where you feel like the agenda could be strengthened? There's a non-compete bill that has been uh, subject to a pretty big ad by, by some business groups. And it's clear that there's an attempt to not trigger lobbying disclosures. So I think, you know, I don't have a solution at this very moment, but it's clear that there's some definitional questions of when are you trying to educate the public about an issue and when are you really trying to influence the governor to veto a bill or not with some of the grassroots activities that are around public, you know, quote unquote, public education. That's an area that, you know, I think we were reminded of recently that maybe, maybe there's some definitional issues to work out a bit to make it more clear when exactly a group is trying to influence um, the passage or defeat of of a bill. In October, the governor made a trip to Israel and That trip prompted questions about who paid for it, and it brought to light uh, or maybe reminded people that the commission is prohibited from disclosing whether guidance has been requested or even given out. And uh, this came up because the governor said she requested some advice and consent on whether she could get her trip paid for by certain third parties. Do you think the law governing whether the commission can disclose whether guidance has even been asked for should be updated so that they can respond to people and publish guidance if uh, it has been issued? One thing that I, I think that was interesting that was that was raised by another one of the watchdog groups, Citizens Union, actually, was that, you know, maybe there's the middle, another middle ground where if an elected official, an appointed official um, 
falsely states <laughs> the advice that they were given by the Ethics Commission, the Ethics Commission can say, this is not the opinion we gave them. So that's an interesting point. Rather than sort of telling the public whether or not, you know, the governor sought the opinion, I think it's probably more important to make it crystal clear that the opinion has to be solicited in advance, that <laughs> you, you have to get pre-clearance. You can't retroactively ask, um, was this is this gift, gift okay? You can't go on a trip um, and with the presumption it's going to be paid for somebody. You have to make that, you have to get that pre-clearance before you go on the trip. That that would be something that I think should be tightened up. Um, the other thing you could do that might be even simpler is just prohibit certain types of gifts from being given to the governor. Um, you know, it's been reinvent Albany's view that if it's worth doing, if it's related to the official duties, which it has to be for a gift to be solicited or to be um, accepted, I should say, maybe it's worth the taxpayers paying for it. And then, you know, um, in this case, you know, the taxpayers are paying for the governor's trip to Israel. That was the outcome, but maybe that's what should happen all along. And then, you know, questions can be raised about, was that a good use of taxpayer resources? But, you know, there are lots of consequences when you have people trying to see, you know, influence state government or doing business with the state giving gifts. Maybe some should just be prohibited altogether and it's cleaner that way. Well, what about the basic principle that there should be confidential guidance? Is there some way in which the public is served by having guidance be private and secret? I think there's a lot of run-of-the-mill cases where you have just official, you know, public officers, staff members who are asking legitimate questions. They just they just need some help navigating the law because it's unclear. You know, can I can I be an adjunct professor at night on, you know, accepting, you know, a modest stipend to be an adjunct professor? That's a very different kind of question than can I take a gift of a pretty large size to go on a trip to Israel out of the country when I'm the governor of a, you know, a state. So, you know, maybe there's different ways of looking at this with statewide officials like the governor um, than it is for, you know, staff members. I think setting up different sets of rules about what can be disclosed to the public, um, what types of gifts can be accept accepted, it, it might make sense to, to treat um, elected officials a little bit differently than staff in some cases. That, that's one possible way of looking at this. Well, finally, do you think the 2024 agenda should include a push for constitutional language that will ensure the legitimacy of this ethics body, which is uh, currently in jeopardy of being ruled unconstitutional? I think it's a little early on that. I would like to see. Well, why, why is it early, though? If I mean, if they could pass it in 2024, it doesn't take effect and it could just be seen as a way to ensure that if there is a ruling against the body and its validity, we'd be in a position in 2025 to pass it. Because if they don't pass it in 2024, the earliest it could be enacted is 2027. Well, I think there's there's two two reasons, perhaps not two. I think one is that, you know, there at least is some confidence the lower court decision is not, you know, going to be supported by the Court of Appeals. Um, the other point is that, you know, there's some ramifications to um, just accepting the notion that the governor can't have any <laughs> ability to uh, give up some of their own power over ethics oversight, for example. Um, 
yeah, a constitutional amendment certainly could clarify it, but you know, we don't think there's anything in the constitution that prohibits the governor from doing reasonable things to ensure independent oversight. Um, so I, you know, in some ways I think it would be helpful to just see it play out because then we know the exact bounds of how the constitution needs to be amended. But I would say, you know, something that was raised at the hearing that is a constitutional issue that isn't related to, you know, how this commission appointed is, you know, the Legislative Ethics Commission, in order to abolish it and give the colleague, the new State Ethics Commission, full ability to discipline legislators, that requires a constitutional amendment. Um, that was something pushed by the watchdog groups at the at the hearing. That's a known constitutional problem that I think is is a little bit separate and something that we view as a little bit more urgent than some of the issues that still haven't played out in the litigation. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. We've been speaking with Rachel Foss, a senior policy advisor for Reinvent Albany. Rachel, thank you so much for making the time. Thanks so much. And for more Capital Press Room content, visit capitalpressroom.org or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you listen to us from an Apple device, make sure to leave us a rating and a review so it helps other people find the show. Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information. Join us again for Capitol Press Room, a production of WCNY Connected, Syracuse.